The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I am Hugh Linehan. It's the end of the week and I'm joined by Pat Leahy and Fia Kelly from our political team. Good afternoon to you both, gentlemen. Hi, Hugh. Good afternoon, Hugh. Fia, Cleo Varadkar says, and I quote, summer is not lost. I was looking out my window 20 minutes ago. There were hailstones coming down. The temperature had dropped by 10 degrees. Uh, he's not very good at weather forecasts, whatever else. No, no, no. But uh, yeah, quite a significant move today. Um, a pretty dramatic acceleration of the roadmap to reopen Ireland from the government bring, basically making it a four-stage plan rather than a five-stage plan, bringing forward many elements from phase three to phase two, which is what we're going into next week, bringing elements from well, uh, phase four into phase three. So quite a dramatic move today uh, by the government. And also, I think the, the, the first time we've seen them explicitly deviate from the advice given to them by the CMO and, and NEFET, although I think... It, it was on two very specific issues. One, the 20 kilometre travel limit that was due to come in uh, place next week to replace the five kilometre travel limit. The CMO said that should be 20 kilometres. The government said that should be in your county. And then secondly, the NEFET wasn't comfortable with the idea of shopping centres reopening, but shopping centres are going to reopen from June the 15th. But there was a sense definitely today that the economic arguments, the arguments that open up the economy, that they perhaps had held sway in what happened today. We have a situation now where the domestic tourism industry is effectively reopened from June 29th. And people in the sector would say that July and August are when they make a lot of their money. So perhaps at one eye to that, what we saw today was the government moving to make sure that those people in the hospitality industry who've probably borne the brunt of what's happened so far have a season to look forward to and that they are not going to go to the wall completely by the end of August. This isn't really a surprise, is it? There's been increasing pressure coming from various sectors. And I think just general behaviour across the country is is probably ahead of the government of anything in terms of the amount of movement that's that's going on. So perhaps it's really just a recognition of a reality and also a reality that most other countries in Europe were on a faster trajectory than the original five-point plan was. It's a recognition of reality in a couple of respects. First of all, I mean, if you look at what's happening in Europe, you see, you know, a broad opening up. Some of it in fits and starts, but there is a broad trend towards opening up. And if the Irish restrictions had remained in place in line with the original timetable, then we would have been very much an outlier uh, by the time, you know, we got into July. So in some respects, um, I think that's what's going on. The other aspects... The other example, I suppose, that it is a recognition of a reality is, as you say, people's behaviour has moved. I mean, I think there is still fairly broad uh, observance of at least the spirit of the restrictions, um, uh, if 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 not the exact letter of the law, uh, in many uh, in many respects. But clearly, the lockdown from day one had a sort of a time limit of it. You can't keep people locked up forever. And I think the public health officials were well aware of that. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, if you cast your mind back 
into February and March and they were being criticised for not bringing in the lockdown quickly, uh, quickly enough. And the other way in which I suppose is a recognition of reality is uh, simply the economic realities that the country faces uh, at the moment. We are mounting up an enormous deficit, large parts of the economy still in deep freeze. Uh, That is something that clearly can't go on indefinitely. And I think part of the reasoning at the centre of government was if we're, if the, you know, given that the virus numbers are encouraging, that suppression in the community has largely been uh, achieved. How long that lasts is another important question, uh, I suppose. But um, given the effective suppression of it uh, uh, at this point, that if you're going to have um, an opening up in July, uh, then you might as well accelerate uh, you accelerate that. Or if you're going to have an opening in late July, early August, um, you might as well get ahead with that now and give the tourist industry where many of the part-time workers that have been on the COVID uh, payment in recent months are, are employed. So I think it gives, as Felix says, gives the tourist industry a shot at having uh, a bit of a season. I think that's where a lot of the p- political and lobbying pressure was uh, directed in recent weeks. One thing actually I might jump in there is that at the press conference just in the last while that uh, the CMO and the Taoiseach said that they, much like the pattern with the rest of how this crisis has been handled from an Irish perspective, that we've been behind the rest of Europe on this and they say they had the the opportunity to watch behaviours in Europe where people were gradually lifting lockdowns, opening up various aspects of the economy and they said when they went into this lockdown, yes, it was conservative and people in government will say it was better to do a you know much more conservative plan that you could speed up rather than a fast plan, you had to slow down. So what they said at the press conference was when they drafted this plan, whatever, number of weeks ago, they had really no, nothing to compare it to across Europe. Nobody was coming out of lockdown then. Yes, people have come out of lockdown the last few weeks and there's something to compare it to. So they say they've had the ability to look around at other examples and follow and tailor our plans accordingly. Fiuk, is there any sense at all of pushback from the scientific or medical community who might have concerns about the speed at which this is now going to happen? Well, not as of yet, because it's only happened in the last hour or so. Um, I think, you know, some people who have observing these things, like if you notice the opinion of medics on our airwaves in the last couple of weeks has started to you know, change somewhat. People are saying, well, it's not necessarily the lockdown. It's the social distancing. It's the hand hygiene. It's the practices that individuals are undertaking. So the opinion within that community seems to have shifted. And I'd say that will have contributed to what we saw today. And should I read anything at all, Pat, into the fact that a few weeks ago, Fianna Fáil were among the first to call for the cancellation of the Leaving Cert and the Leaving Cert was then cancelled. Over the last week, Michal Martin has been saying that the um, the restrictions should be eased faster, particularly the ones pertaining to, to travel and tourism around the country. Does Michal Martin have the year of Leo Varadkar particularly at the moment? You would have thought so, given that they're trying to put a government uh, together. And I guess we'll talk about that in, uh, in a few minutes. I think the Fianna Fáil position on the Leaving Cert was one that their education spokesman, Thomas Byrne, had had for, um, uh, you know, had been advocating for a period of time. And it did come at a time, remember, when we were still in the, you know, in the early phase of the lockdown and when the virus numbers were nothing uh, near as encouraging as uh, as they are now. Recent weeks, as you say, uh, Michal Martin, particularly lately in the Dáil, has been uh, has been pushing for a quicker lockdown, and I think that is probably reflective of 
what Fianna Fáil TDs are hearing in their localities. And, you know, if there's one thing that Fianna Fáil is good at, it is reflecting the wishes of the people who uh, who support the party, who engage with the party's TDs, who come into their clinics and so, uh, and, and so forth. So to that extent, you know, all Irish politicians are in touch with their electorates constantly. If they're not, they lose their seats. So, you know, I think that's probably you were probably seeing a reflection of the public mood in those comments. The the other um the other point that was uh, that was made today was that the the current financial supports for people who've lost their jobs as a result of COVID nineteen or to actually keep them in employment um while companies are shut down, those are going to continue for the foreseeable future for for the rest of the summer anyway. Yeah, well, it's envisaged that this is only a four-stage plan now. The supports, the the PUP, the €350 pandemic unemployment payment and the income support or the wage subsidy scheme will apply to the end of August. So the the rationale for that was that, you know, while we hope to have the economy opened by July 20th to a lesser, greater lesser extent, that it might take people in business and uh, various companies a couple of weeks to get themselves back up and running fully. So that will remain in place the reason why the wage subsidy scheme is going to be there until the end of August is to take in the, the I suppose, the mid, mid-August mid uh, pay run if you pay your, your, your staff every two weeks and the end of August pay run if you stay, pay your staff monthly. But what was interesting is that Pascal Dunahoo said that it's a possibility that the uh, wage subsidy scheme will outlast the pandemic unemployment scheme. So you can perhaps maybe see a situation where the next government, because it is going to be a decision for the next government, will choose to direct its resources towards the income support scheme rather than the pandemic unemployment scheme to get people back into companies and get them back working and off the 350 euro scheme. What they also did today was to introduce two bands to that scheme that if you were effectively a part-time worker, although it's done on income, if you were earning less than 200 euro a week before the crisis, you will now get 203 euro in the payment in line with the uh, unemployment benefit. If you were getting more than 200 euro a week, you will get the old or the normal 250 euro payment. So that was something else that was a uh, decision was taken today. And that's something that the parties on the left have been critical of as a measure, but it was always going to come, wasn't it, Pat? Uh, yeah, I think it'd been fairly well flagged in uh, in recent weeks, even before uh, the somewhat unfortunate intervention of Pat McDonough of, uh, of of Supermax on on the matter. I mean, tales of people who had been, you know, students, some of the young people who were, you know, had part time jobs doing one shift a week in a bar, or a supermarket, earning a hundred quid or hundred and fifty quid, and were suddenly being enriched. To the tune of three hundred and fifty euros a week by the uh, by the exchequer, and that was one aspect of it. The other aspect was that business owners were saying, you know, when they wanted to reopen, they couldn't get people to come back and do their uh, do the one shift a week because they would lose their three hundred and fifty euros a week. So I think that was uppermost in the government's mind, but it's also one of the factors in the decision making process is the sheer cost of continuing with the uh, the pandemic payment and um you know particularly in the department of finance as you would expect you know people are beginning to fret about the escalating costs of this they accept of course that it is going to be very expensive in this um in this early phase but um uh, but they are keen to limit the costs to what is absolutely necessary rather than um you know what is perhaps politically convenient or popular 
Now, Pat, Fiat mentioned the fact that there will be a new government in place in September. I suppose that's unless there's an election in September because there's been a failure to form a new government. But where are we with this long and winding road as we stand here now on um, on the at the end of the first week in June? Decision point, to be honest. So my understanding is that t- today they uh, the Greens are meeting, uh, the number of groups within the party are meeting. It is hoped that tomorrow uh, there'll be a plenary session which will sign off everything that doesn't have to go to the leaders. Um, If the Greens come back and are in a position to sign off all those policy uh, papers at the plenary session tomorrow, then the remaining bits of the programme for government will be thrashed out between the three leaders uh, over the coming few days. Either way, I think we should know this weekend or very shortly after if we have a programme for government and if there is one agreed what the contents of it are. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're pretty much at uh, a decision point now. Harry, our colleague Harry McGee had a couple of interesting pieces this week about grassroots sentiment in, in two of the three parties that were involved anyway, the Green Party and, and Fine Gael. A lot of focus on the Green Party because the, the thought is that words should be in agreement within between the leaders and the negotiating teams. The stickiest one is the Green Party, obviously because they need a two-thirds majority, also because they have a membership very much composed of the majority of the people in the Green Party right now weren't members two or three years ago. Do you think that's what it might come down to is will... The Green Party, you know, um, stick or not? Yeah, I think if there's to be uh, an obstacle to this deal or something that derails this government, it will be the Greens' uh, membership and that two-thirds majority that's needed. I agree with Pat. I think most people involved in the process think a deal will be done now that they're getting to the stage where there is progress on issues that were causing difficulty earlier in the week. They're now getting through them. The leaders will sign off on them. It's like a Fine Gael membership is not going to reject this deal. Fine Gael councillors aren't too happy with it. Maybe the members might be split, but I think Fine Gael is not a party that would do something that like scupper a, a programme for government deal. I could be horribly wrong on that. The feeling in Fianna Fáil is that them, their membership will largely accept it as well. But as you say, a couple of elements in the Greens add to that uncertainty. One, that it's the two-thirds bar, that you have to get a two-thirds majority. And two, the fact that so many of their members are so new and that people who would be around the party for a long number of years don't really have a handle on them. But as you say, Harry had an interesting piece this week where he went and spoke to a few of those new members and he found that counter to that kind of view that they were all people of the left and people young and, you know, that generation, that they were actually people who were much more okay with going into government with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael if the deal is right. And I think people in the Greens say, like, the deal has to be right. We can't stress that enough that, well, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael who have been involved in negotiating these talks with the Greens say, look, they ask us for this 7% thing. They ask us for investment in walking, cycling. They want roads given less priority than public transport. And then we ask them how it's done. This is what the common complaint is when they're dealing with the Greens. We ask them how it's done and they just don't know how to put their own policies onto paper and into practice. That may be well and good, but they need to be able to sell it to their membership in detail and in practice and show them exactly how this 7% and ex- is going to be done, exactly how direct provision is going to be abolished and replaced. That's a key issue for the Greens. It may not be the, the one that's at the top of the agenda, but it's it's pretty at top of their agenda. That's going to be the key that sells it for them. It's just, it's just the unknown in this process, the Green membership. 
the composition of it, who's going to vote, the turnout. One person said to me um, recently, I thought it was a, a, a good observation of party memberships generally, the people who are the most active and the most involved are the people who hold strong opinions on it. So the people in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil who are so opposed to this deal uh, are the people probably who, a lot of them who are out canvassing in elections, they're in branches because that's the old enemy. The casual member, according to the way this person told me, is more likely to support a deal. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's an interesting perspective that the casual member is more likely to go along with something that they perhaps see to be more in a wider interest than a narrow party political interest. The question with the Greens is how many of those around 3,000 members now are casual, how many are really active uh, environmentalists and Green Party activists? Or indeed, I mean, uh, Pat, I was very taken with, with Harry's article. He painted a picture of the Green Party, which, which was slightly different perhaps than some of the received wisdom of this, you know, party composed mostly of new members in that most of those new members, he was really saying, were people, were young parents, younger middle-aged parents in their in their 30s and in their 40s who were worried about the future of their kids. So they weren't kind of radical 20, 23-year-olds. They weren't necessarily the people who were out in the Black Lives Matter march that controversially took place um, on Monday. You could get stuck, couldn't you, on something like direct provision, which which did figure largely in that march on Monday, which which brought out thousands of people. Yeah, um, it clearly will be um, an important issue for many in the Green Party, though I suspect it will be a more important issue for the social justice warrior wing of the Greens than for the... Uh, the environmental and ecological wing of uh, of the party. And I think that it's likely that the people for whom direct provision might be a decisive issue are less likely, are probably less likely to be uh, supportive of the uh, supportive of the, the programme for government and the Greens participation in that government are anyway. I mean, to an extent, we're all shooting in the dark here because we don't have, despite, you know, Harry did some really good research on it, I thought, um, but nobody has an accurate political or psychological map of, uh, of, of, of the membership of the Green Party. I'm not even sure that, you know, the leadership and the parliamentary party have uh, have an accurate map. They'll all have a pretty good idea, but not that not sufficiently good or sufficiently accurate that I think they'll be able to make uh, um, you know a reliable prediction as to how it might go. There's also the question of the margin. You know, it's not just a fifty percent margin, as we know, it's a sixty six or sixty seven percent margin that is required. Uh, to to pass the, this. So it's a pretty high bar that Eamon Ryan has to clear. Ultimately, the decision that the Greens have to make is a kind of a cold political decision. It's, you know, they won't get everything they want uh, in this. Of course they won't. There are 7% party, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, 43% between them. So the decision they will have to make is, is everything in the programme for government, assuming one is concluded, is that, better for them? Is that more livable with? Uh, uh, can they live with that? Or do they wish to effectively roll the dice, see if they can cobble together some other type of government, or go for, uh, a, or, or seek a general election? And after that election, would they be in a better position 
uh, are in a position to no- negotiate a programme for government that was stronger on the things that they care about. That's the decision that they will have to weigh up. To take this bird in the hand or uh, to uh, to roll the dice on, on the two birds in the bush to mix metaphors. So um, I just don't know how that's going to go. I think it does depend for a lot of people on the uh, on the programme for government. But we already know that they won't get everything they want in the in the program for government. Well, they they may not get everything, but but Vic, they do have red lines, and I suppose the the real the core red lines are the ones relation in relation to the environment and to climate change, and the you know will they get the commitment to a seven percent reduction in carbon emissions um, every year? Uh, if they're to get that, is that are we going to see like hard detail on that? The whole thorny question of can you do that without ha- taking significant measures that impact on agriculture? What kind of impact does that have on the grassroots in both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? Isn't that kind of the the proof of the pudding really that the seven percent and perhaps some other things around around road building and maybe biodiversity? Yeah, that's the crux of it. And from what I've heard of the negotiations to date, that Richard Bruton, who is the current Minister for Communications and Climate Action and is on top of his brief. He's known as a politician, who has a a, a pretty comprehensive command of detail, that he always brings it back to, okay, you want this, how do you do it? That it's quite, uh, you know, it's brought back to those principles every time. And that is where the difficulty lays. The people who are slightly frustrated with the Greens and dealing with it, go back to my previous point, they say, yes, they want this, but we can't quite figure out how they want to get there but then against that, I think, Pat, you made this point in a piece during the week that the Greens then put forward their ideas for doing this in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. So you can't have that. that that'll upset our base. That'll upset our agricultural base. So it's th- those, two, those two competing dynamics are currently at play. And that is the, I think that is the, the, the pinch, a couple of outstanding issues. One is the deficit that probably looks like there'll be a wor- an element of wording found on that to, to get them all over the hump. The, the other one is the pension age. It's a, it's a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael issue. Fianna Fáil want the pension age uh, rise to 67, which should happen next year, not to happen. Fianna Gael wants it to happen, but structured differently. Um, the Green Party don't, don't really care about that. Those are the outstanding issues. So it is the 7% and it is the transport issue and it is the pension. I think those are the key issues that have to be settled throughout this weekend. Do you agree with that, Pat? Yeah, my um, understanding of where things are at at the moment is that... Uh, Everything uh, that Fiek uh, has said there is uh, is is correct. Um, I think all sides acknowledge that they can get over the hump on the pension thing. They can get over the hump on the deficit. They can get over any hump, but the uncertainty remains on the means of achieving the 7%. That's where uh, the difficulty I think if there is to be a difficulty, I think that's where it will be. And that is where I think that's where the Greens will have to make their call. The other, other, other issues that were outstanding at the start of the week, such as the Land Development Agency, the Greens were uncomfortable about how it was being structured and they felt that it was using state land for private interests. I think from what I'm hearing, that's kind of largely been if not solved very much on the way to being solved overnight. Um, then there's a surprising issue of uh, the carbon tax and how it's structured. The Greens want some element of fee and dividend, which is 
the checks in the post model, but I think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are quite adamant that the model they have, which is you hypothecate the tax and reinvest it, will remain. So there's a bit of work going on there to marry the two. It'll probably be more hypothecation than fee and dividend. Um, but those issues are, are, are largely being settled if there is a few niggly bits left. But yeah, as Pat says, it's a 7%. And how do you get there? It's going to cause the trouble. The hypothecation is a bit surprising, isn't it, Pat? Because um, the Greens want to give the money back to people, um, which sounds like the more populist approach to me, although I'm perhaps I'm not properly up on the underlying theory, whatever it might be. Well, shame on you, Hugh. Um, but Again. Uh, <laughs> I think that stems from the Greens' fear that, and this fear has surfaced particularly in the discussions on economic policy and on deficit reduction in the second half of the government, that they would be associated with anything that's even related to the family tree of austerity. And I think they fear if there is, and you remember the sort of opposition that Sinn Féin had in the last election to um, uh, to an increase in the carbon uh, in the carbon tax. And I think that um, I think they're afraid that the carbon tax increases would be thrown at them as tax increases and therefore austerity and uh, and and therefore something that would uh, cause them significant political damage, but that they would also see as a regressive social uh, social measure. Um, to an extent, that's kind of having their cake and uh, and eating it, but um, but I think that's where it comes from. So. I suppose, and this is not the first time I've asked this question, Fiak, and you're very good for answering it all the time, but um, what's the time scale here? When might we see white smoke? And then if you see white smoke, how long does the process of the parties coming to a decision take? And should that all have a positive outcome? When do we actually see a new Taoiseach elected? I think yeah, I, people are talking about next Tuesday, Wednesday being the absolute deadline and I, I'm starting to believe that now. It's been said with a conviction that maybe wasn't been said a week ago. Uh, people believe that this is the time decisions have to be made and I think a couple of elements this week have helped that. Like It seemed to me that through a couple of actions this week the Taoiseach decided that he was going to force the pace. He was going to make the process, like make force people into making decisions. So one, we had that statement that his parliamentary party meeting on Tuesday night about the pension needing to be de- dealt with that changing the pension age would send out a bad signal to the markets, uh, talking about the importance of deficit uh, reduction. Then his kind of the brusque dealing with the independence, if I can put it that way. A lot of independents came into meetings with um, the three leaders thinking they'd get ministerial office. We're told they could be the new Jackie Healy Ray and Mildred Fox. Didn't appeal to a lot of them. That solved that conundrum. Get to the bottom of who's on board and who's not. So I think we're seeing a couple of things this week that would lead me to believe that yes, by next Tuesday, Wednesday, we will see a program for government produced. It will be there, and then if that happens, you're what the Taoiseach said at the press conference earlier was ten days to two weeks by way of ratification. You're talking about like the Fianna Fáil Lord Coral have just met this morning to give me Martin the okay to have a postal ballot. So you're talking about two weeks at least to get that done. Then a couple of days after that to, you know, elect the Taoiseach. But there is this hard deadline of the end of June by which the Offences Against the State Act must be renewed. That is a hard deadline. So I think we will probably see a Taoiseach elected by the end of June. But if the talks don't work, that means there goes the um, there goes those those provisions of those of legislation because they're not renewed. Yeah, the Taoiseach was asked about this at a parliamentary party meeting the other night and he said, oh, 
because this idea that the Shannon isn't fully constituted until the 11 Taoiseach nominees are appointed can't be done by an outgoing Taoiseach, that perhaps on some cross-party basis we could elect a Taoiseach and the Taoiseach could appoint the 11 senators. That's not a flyer at all. The, the great question is what happens if this process doesn't come to a successful conclusion? Is it an election automatically? Does the Taoiseach go and seek a dissolution of, of, of the doll? Is it then thrown back to other parties to say, you know, okay, why not talk to Sinn Féin now? Why not widen the pool to see if there can be a government? You would imagine if it all fell apart, there would be a reflection period of a week or two where people would collect themselves. Debates would rage within parties about what they should and shouldn't do. And like, you know, the, the Sinn Féin lobby in Fianna Fáil might rear itself again. And you'd have to let that play itself out before you decided what route you were going to go down. And I suppose, finally, Pat, if... Let's say that a new government is elected right at the end of June or the beginning of July. Presumably pretty quickly after that, the doll goes into summer recess and that government just goes into government buildings and tries to figure out what the hell it's going to do because September is really a sort of a, it's a start of, it's the start of the new post-COVID era, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, there'd be a number of things that would have to go through the doll um and we're getting a, a bit of ahead of ourselves and maybe there's a whole other podcast, but yes, you would have the Defence Against the State votes. There's legislation required on some of the uh, COVID supports, particularly uh, in relation to taxation. Um, so all that sort of stuff would have to go through the doll. I think it would then probably adjourn uh, after a couple of weeks to enable new ministers to get their knees under their desk, get their team set up. And as soon as you came back in September, then you would be into budget preparation and also into uh, Brexit preparations because uh, that will, I suspect, dominate the autumn politically just as much uh, as it has done in the last three autumns. So um, whatever government uh, is, is, is formed, I think is going to have a pretty hefty intray uh, in July. Yeah, Brexit will be a whole other podcast and as I say several more podcasts as the as the year wears on. We haven't had one of them in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're doing all right. Yeah, we can definitely do that. We'll leave it there for today though and thanks to uh, to Pat and Vic for to joining us. Thanks also to our producer Suzanne Brennan and JJ Vernon on the decks and if you'd like to support this podcast and the Irish Times all you have to do is sign on at irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you get it for the satisfactory price of one euro for the first month and if you want to get in touch with us we'd be delighted to hear from you. Email us at politics podcast at irishtimes.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.